Welcome to Mints on Air and Client Corner, perspectives from founders, financiers, and friends. I am Josh Fox. In each episode of this podcast, I will be joined by an entrepreneur, an investor, or a member of the startup community. My guests will share their experiences in starting and running a business, investing in a business, and helping to support a business. I hope that my conversations with my friends will provide valuable advice to you, help those of you who are starting a business to help make it successful, and inspire those of you who have yet to start a new venture. My guest today is Paul LaFlock, co-founder and chief executive officer of Axoft. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Josh. Glad you can have me today. Paul, you and I have been working together for some time now on Axoft. What is the mission of the company? So the mission of Axoft is to bring new technological solutions for the treatment of neurological disorders and fundamentally improving our understanding of the brain. And how does it plan to go about accomplishing those goals? We are uh, are a deep tech company. So this is uh, the type of technologies that take a decent amount of time to reach commercialization stage. So before being a company with a product, we are a research and development company that is aiming toward clinical testing of our technology to demonstrate safety and effectiveness. Could you tell us more, Paul, about the product itself, where it's at at its stage of development? Yeah, so at Exof, we're building implantable electronics and in particular brain implants made with materials specifically designed to interact well with the brain on the long term to minimize damage onto the brain and to improve the communication that we can have between an electronic implant and the body because this is the heart of new therapies and new diagnostic that can be done with medical devices. So that being said, we are at the R&D stage, we're a pre-seed company, we're pre-products on the clinical side, but that being said, we are closer to products on the preclinical and research sides. And right now, really, our focus is on technological and regulatory milestones. So we're building the base layer of our platform, which is a hardware platform technology. What do you see as the challenges for Axoft and the opportunities for the company moving forward? I think one of the main challenges in medical technologies is the adoption of new technologies by clinicians, because you are developing a new tool that they need to gain insights or to develop new therapies. And so it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem where you need a new tool to accomplish something new that then will be valued. So there is a bit of a leap of faith, and that's one of the challenges. And obviously, another challenge is the regulatory aspects of developing uh, medical devices. And what do you see as the opportunities for the company? Well, the opportunity is to really disrupt the way we treat and diagnose neurological disorders. There has been so much innovation in the semiconductor, advanced materials, and electronic space. And now all this innovation is dripping into the the healthcare and the, and, and the medical system. And we are part of that wave with Axoft. And I think this is a great opportunity to start a, a company in this field. And could you talk to us to the extent that the information has been publicly disclosed? How much capital has Axoft raised and from whom? As of now, we've raised a little more than $8 million in, million in venture capital 
from early stage and deep tech investors with either some focus in hardware, in biotech, or in healthcare. I'd like to talk to you now, Paul, about the formation of the company. Looking back in time, could you talk a little bit more about at, at that moment in time, why did you think that this was the right place, the right time for this business idea? Yes, of course. So about two to about three years ago, I was trying to wrap up my PhD and we had some very interesting results from the lab. So I developed some of the core technologies that were trying to commercialize and I was seeing its potential for launching products that could help people have a positive impact on the world. And I just didn't think that many people would have been able to carry out my project outside of the university. So it felt uh, almost like a duty to take this out and try to make it available for everyone because it's it's very complex. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a research work. And if I'm not the one doing it, then who is going to do it? So it's almost like we have to. It's interesting to hear you talk about that. Um, when I've heard other founders talk about starting a company, there is certainly a focus on the problem and what needs to be done to help with that problem. Clearly, that's part of the decision that you made. But I, what I heard that I found fascinating, that response is that because of the complexity of the, the technology, that there would be very few other people who could bring this technology forward in a way to help solve the problem. Yes, I agree. I think that there is a bit of both. There is this kind of like almost pragmatic reason that if I'm not the one doing it, then it's probably just going to be another PhD work that's uh, not like bringing it to the world and, and bring it to its, its full potential. And then I think I always had the interest into the, the interaction of technology and with biological system and, and how we could develop things that can improve people's life based on science. So that those two things kind of drove me away from academia and into the entrepreneurship world. And how long before incorporating the company in 2021 was the concept in process? What work was done in the lab? How long a period of time was that work being done? Yeah. So I think it's accurate to say that we had half of the proof of concept as I was finishing my PhD. Like we, we thought seriously about it and how it could in, like solve some of the problems that other technologies have when trying to interact with the brain. And the other half of the work really came after we raised our or pre-seed and then through our seed round. So we definitely took a leap of faith there. And yeah, I think we started to talk about Axoft almost six months before incorporating. So I was I was um, in my last semester of PhD and it came at the right time because I had to take the decision for myself of what I wanted to do after. Was this the first time you had ever started a company? Yes, that's the first company ever. And do you have a long track record in terms of thought process is probably the best way to say, it. did you have this thought in mind when you were younger or earlier in your career that you might want to start a biotech startup? Not really. I think I, I was aware of all this like startup world and I was very exposed to it. Uh, you know, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, there are just a lot of biotechs, but I never really got into it. The only thing I was telling myself is if I build something that I think is valuable to the world, then I will look into how I could bring it uh, through a startup. And that's what happened. But before that, I didn't really see the, the push to do that. So it's um, maybe a little bit different from a lot of founders, but that's the truth. And 
with that thought process in mind, going into the first time you were founding the company, was it intimidating? Were you concerned about your ability to move it forward? Or is this something that you felt like so many people had done it before and there are so many resources out there available to you that it would be fairly easy to do? It was certainly intimidating, but I'm a risk taker a little bit. And I felt like, you know, uh, after finishing school and leaving academia, if I had to take risk at one time, that probably the right time to do it because, uh, you know, I'm still young and, and, and it's okay, uh, even if it doesn't work. And I still think that way. Uh, and I also think I talked with a few founders because I wanted to learn about their experience, people who've been doing this for, I don't know, between like one year and 10 years and, and then realized that I think there was no right time to do it. So because everything is so unpredictable and a function of what you do before in the company that, that really you can't know until you start. And so because of that, the sooner the better. So uh, that's, that's my, my thought about it. And looking back now, what did you learn about the process of starting a company? There is a bit of paperwork, but that's, uh, I think the, the thing that surprised me most, and it's because of my academic background, was that there is an operational aspect of it that uh, once the company is launched, then there are things to do, there are duties. And this is different from academia, where usually we have more control over our, our time and, and when we do things. Uh, usually it's more stretched out in time in academia. And, and you can see things coming while for the startup, there is more, yeah, more things to do on a daily basis. Uh, so I had to get used to that, but I think it would have been true you know, if I had chosen another job. At the time you formed Axoft, did you know who your co-founder or co-founders were going to be? At the time we got the idea, I knew that my PhD advisor would be involved, but uh, it was such a big endeavor that I also felt like I, I needed support. And I started to look for co-founders in, in the circles that were uh, relatively close to me. And I interviewed one person who I asked, like, do you know someone with your skills and your background who would like to join a company like what I'm trying to build? And that person actually joined. So, sure. um, it was serendipity and perfect timing because it was before incorporation. So we had time to sit down and discuss about how we would make this happen. Uh, usually it's, it's a bit more tricky if you, if you start the company and then try to find other co-founders because uh, a lot of things have already been done. So yeah, we ended up being three founders, including one professor. Broadening our conversation, Paul, now from the formation of Axoft to the industry that Axoft is in, medical devices. What's your perspective on the current state of the medical device space? I think the medical device space is ripe for innovation because, as I mentioned, uh, there are a lot of novel technologies and science from the semiconductor industry and, and materials that are ready to be used for medical and clinical purpose. And because of this exponential progress of knowledge in another field, it starts to happen to drip into other fields like this one. So. Yeah, it's a very good time to develop this. Now, the medical devices space is known to be not the easiest market or the easiest thing to do. It never was and it probably will never be. But it's also uh, extremely important because it solves problems for patients that cannot be solved with drugs or other things. So it's crucial, but at the same time, a little bit ungrateful compared to other fields. But that's also what makes it interesting because then the people you meet in this field are really passionate about what they are doing. They have to be. And 
that's important when you're embarking upon the process of starting a company and trying to build the business. Having that passion is going to help you through the the difficult times as well. What would you say has been the most rewarding part of running your business? To some extent, being able to fundraise is rewarding because you it means you are able to convey a vision to investors before you make it happen and they believe in that. So yeah, it's like finding partners to support the project. So that happens on the fundraising level, but actually also happens on the on the board level and the advisory level as well. So like building the team and the connections through all of that is really rewarding. And while we're on the topic of building a team, Paul, could you talk about what your role has been as the CEO in the hiring process? So my role in the hiring process has been to, I've interviewed every single person who work in the team at some level. And for some of the first hire, I was also doing the technical part of the interview because of my background, but now it's really more of uh, an alignment meeting. I need to make sure that we share a vision, we share a passion, and we share enough culture that uh, it's going to work out with the rest of the team. It's not just about the skills of one person, it's about how this person will fit into the team and the diversity they bring. And and it's um, sometimes we can have the best experts, but if they we don't really feel like they will fit with the rest of the team, uh, it might not work out. How do you go about determining in that interview as to whether the person is going to be a good fit? You mentioned some concepts like vision, passion. How do you measure those intangibles when you're speaking with somebody as part of the hiring process? I think passion can be heard through the voice and the intonation and how the person talks about their previous work and what they want to do. It's, it's the one that's the most easy to figure out. Then regarding the culture, what I like to ask is, what do people do for fun? What do they do apart from work? Because it's as important as their motivation. And if I don't see that they have this personal life on the side, it's probably not going to work out. So that's one thing I asked. Those are good ideas for questions to ask in an interview. When somebody's now on your team, Paul, thinking about your role as the chief executive officer, how would you describe your management style? I think my CTO and I, we try to be as much of a democratic leaders as we can, because we like to have the people in the team take part in the decisions. Then they will actively try to solve those problems if they do the decisions by themselves. And uh, it's not always possible to be democratic in the startup because we're very resource limited. There is a little bit of, of, of scarcity and there is dark deadlines. And so sometimes we need to be a little bit more driven or, or driving the, the, the goals for the people. But uh, yeah, democratic as much as possible. Earlier in our conversation, Paul, you talked about the satisfaction that you obtained from successfully pitching Axoff to investors. I'd like to talk to you about the fundraising process. What was it like for you raising the first round of financing for the company? So the first round of fundraising is uh, is interesting because it is a little bit like a, like a love story between the investors and between the team because you don't have much. You have an idea, you have a pitch deck, uh, maybe some elements to answer your questions, but it has to be this connection with the investors that makes them invest in the company. And beyond the connection to the idea, what do you think 
is key to successfully pitching a company? What advice would you have to entrepreneurs who are pitching companies to investors as to how to be successful in that process? What should they do? First of all, there is a selection process. I think when we start a company, especially for the first time, we tend to think that we need to pitch to every single investor. But actually, it's important to check first if they can be aligned based on the mission of the fund they have, uh, what type of investment they have done before. So alignment on the long-term vision and what it can bring to the world is paramount to determine who are the investors to talk to. And then I think it, it just goes from there. It needs to be confirmed through the, the meetings with the, with the people from the funds that it's indeed aligned. And I think it's also important to, 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 to show off like the passion and the interest we have in the topic because it's, uh, very difficult to run the startup. So there needs to be a, a really strong motivation from the founders. Um, it needs to be seen because it's going to get difficult at some point and investors want to make sure that they invest in people who will be able to, who will not give up over time, essentially. Could you describe what your relationships are like with your investors outside the context of the fundraising process? So after you've closed that financing round, you have individuals or entities that have invested in your business. How do you interact with them on a regular basis, if, if you do? Yeah, so every investor is different. So we, some of them will be extremely hands-off and some of them will want to interact more. And I think that's great to maintain regular updates for the investors uh, monthly or quarterly because this is what's going to maintain them aware about the status of the project and they can help to solve problems. So we try to have that. And then I think within our investors, there are one or two from which we're particularly close that we tend to spend more time with them and ask for advice or connections. And it's uh, good to have a few like that. Agreed. Investors can play different roles. So for you to have some investors where you can lean on them for advice based on their experience, I'm, I'm sure is very valuable to you. Before you brought in any investors, what would you say were your biggest challenges? Was it getting your first round of financing done or was it something else that kept you up at night? I think there were many things to learn and the challenge for me was to learn them fast enough because literally the moment we started to talk with investors, I had to learn how to make a pitch deck at the same time. So we had to do it extremely quickly. And then the second part that was a challenge, and it's still a challenge, but at a different level, is when you work on, on complex technologies, if you understand the core technology, you will always feel like a challenge to talk about things that you've not demonstrated in the lab yet, because researchers are extremely rational. So it's difficult because you're pitching a vision, you believe in what you can achieve, but this is the opposite of what researchers do, because they build technologies and they, they do science and then they publish. They don't do a paper to talk about what they want to do before they do it. So changing hats like that and, and like turning off the researcher's mind uh, when talking to an investor was challenging in the beginning. In terms of challenges, when some startups reach a very difficult point in their business, they pivot. We've heard that phrase used often in the startup community, businesses out of necessity often just need to make a change in a way that they had not originally anticipated. Has Axoft pivoted in any way yet? 
So the, the term pivot is, it can mean everything, right? There's pivot and pivot. There is like, uh, if you're selling apples and then you start to sell oranges, then yeah, it's a real pivot. You're doing something fundamentally different. Uh, but sometimes you're selling apples and you decide to sell uh, sliced apples and that's <laughs> less of a pivot, right? So right. I think we're, we're more into the second category at XOF where our long-term vision has not changed at all. But because it's so long and difficult to commercialize technology, we uh, are constantly trying to improve what's the best go-to-market strategy and how we can make ourselves relevant on the shorter term rather than the long term. So we had and we're still having some of those discussions. And I think it's totally normal to have it. If we didn't have that, it would mean that we're probably not listening to external factors like the fundraising environment, like the competition, or what's happening for other companies ahead of us in terms of their clinical progress. So I think it's totally healthy to have at least this type of pivots. And yeah, there is nothing wrong with it, but it's definitely challenging because the bigger the team, the more people need to change direction. And the role of the CEO is to keep the alignment between everyone, the team, the investors, the board, the advisors. So that's definitely something that can be challenging. Right. So to date, Axoft has sliced that apple up, but not not yet stop selling apples. Exactly. <laughs> um, it, was this the first time that you've served as the chief executive officer of a company? I know you you confirmed that it was the first time starting a company, but had you ever been a CEO before? I had not been CEO. I think the closest thing I have done was to run an association at school uh, with some people in the association. There were some responsibility, there was a budget, but it was not really like what we're doing now. That being said, I have one of uh, my degrees in France is a Master of Executive Engineering, which has a component of leading projects and an and operational aspect of it. So that prepared me a little bit. So you have you know some experience and some academic background that was helpful, but you do have your PhD in Mechanical Engineering and Material Science. So with the limited experience and the limited education in the area you've had, could you talk about the challenges that you've had as a scientific founder serving as the CEO of a company for the first time and running the business? How, how have you managed to, to, to fulfill that role given the limited nature of the experience that you had prior to this? Yeah. So I think, as I mentioned, one of the main challenge was to transition from pitching as a researcher to pitching as a CEO. Because there are things that you would say as a researcher that would totally like like kill your discussion with, with the investors. And you can say these. Uh, these are not wrong, but it's just uh, the way it works right now, at least. So because of that, it's important. The most useful skill was to stay adaptable, to be able to learn fast. And, and from each investor's meeting, have some takeaways for how the next one could be done better. So it's a learning process. You you learn from the experience. You may not have read books about it. You may not have done it before to be able to extrapolate from prior experience. But you're you're learning as you're as you're moving forward with this with this business. Yeah, we're definitely learning and trying to find the right advisors and people to talk to. I mean, we we try to read a book or two. We also watch the show Silicon Valley. So you know. <laughs> <laughs> we did everything we could do to learn, but uh, I think fundamentally there is um, 
you can't be fully prepared. And because you can't be fully prepared, I think it's normal to to take the leap even when you have little experience. And honestly, we are extremely lucky in the Cambridge-Boston area with all the ecosystem of startups and and companies and the universities that there are resources to help researchers become CEOs or become executive of tech companies. It's funny you mentioned the television show Silicon Valley. I've had a lot of people ask me, Josh, have you seen it knowing what I do for a living? Um, I have not. Paul, what would you say about its realism? Is it is it a realistic depiction of starting and running a, a business in the in the biotech space that you know at, at an early stage? I mean, it's a sitcom, so there's definitely like a lot of things that we can't translate. But what is true about this show is every episode is extremely different and there can be that poor dynamics completely reversed from one day to another based on what happened in the world or, or what happened inside the company. And I think that is very accurate, that it's a lot of ups and downs and it feels like a lot of changes, but it's because the early stage companies are very small. So every time there is a hiccup or something happening, it seems like a huge variation. When you become a bigger company, these variations are more like ripples in the ocean. So that's, that was the, the part of the show that I think was very accurate. Interesting to hear. I'll put it on my watch list. As CEO, Paul, what is your typical day like? How do you spend your time on, on an average day? I try to have between a few hours to half a day where I try to be proactive, and by proactive, I mean trying to execute things within the company or meeting with people from the company. And then the other half is more turning toward the external world, and that can include meetings with different stakeholders, investors, uh, meeting with you, and also uh, replying to the hundreds of emails that we get every day. But yeah, it's it's. Imp- I think the the rule of thumb is try to keep a window where you're not just reactive but proactive. That's good advice. And if you have good advice for me on how to get through those emails, I could use it because that is a challenge for all of us nowadays. In terms of the roles that you have, Paul, in our discussion today, I've heard you essentially have an HR function because you're hiring you are helping to raise capital, so you're a fundraiser. Tell me more about the aspect of being a founder and a member of the management team of a startup in terms of the different hats that you have to wear. What does that feel like? It seems like it could be overwhelming to try to jump back and forth between different roles. And and how does that impact the feel of your day and, and the cadence of it? Yeah, I'm going, to, I'm going to start by listing the different functions that we can talk about how to deal with it. But indeed, there is the HR, the fundraising, there is a business component that is go out to talk to the people who might work with your technology and or, or might buy it. Uh, there is financial components, not really the fundraising part, but more of the accounting part. There is the technology part for founders who come from the academia that usually there is a, basically this transition period where you transmit your knowledge and what you've built to the people you hire uh, so that you don't need to, to go to the lab or, or, or do the actually the, the technical work yourself. And then there is the organizational and execution aspect that is how to get things done, how to manage people to get things done. And those functions 
are usually split between multiple people. So in our case, we're two founders. There is me as CEO and, and there is my co-founder, Tian Yang Ye, as, as CTO. And I think in every startup, this split can be different and it's going to be based on skills and personalities. So CEO or CTO, there is a trend for who does what, but the frontier can be very different depending on, on different duos or trios of people who split these tasks. It's a lot. When I hear advice from our investors, it feels like we should be spending 20% of time doing this, 30% of time doing that. And when you add up everything, it's like 200%. So yes, <laughs> it doesn't work. And you can only do that much every day. So there is this feeling of being overwhelmed, but it's something it's something that you get used to and you can control. I, I think that's why a lot of people who did PhD, for instance, can deal with because there is a little bit of this permanent uncertainty and, and, and doubt and sometimes feeling overwhelmed when doing the research and being able to do it over years. So this translates really well to an early stage startup. Paul, clearly you have, and not surprising, with a smaller company, you have to play a lot of different roles and that's going to be challenging in many ways. How do you manage the stress that comes along with that? And what advice do you have for people who will be in a similar situation or generally we all have stress? Well, how do you, how do you manage to deal with it? So for me, the personal relationships are, are very important because they uncover me into a reality that I would get detached from if I didn't have it. So my my partner, my family, my friends are around. I think it's uh, in my French culture that we tend to value a lot what we do aside from working and really trying to respect that is the best way for me to keep going because I would get burned out very quickly if I didn't have that that mindset that you, even if I love my work and I love to push this forward, this is definitely not the only thing that drives me and makes me happy and fulfilled. Paul, you just mentioned an important part of managing stress is to have important people in your life. I also feel like I need to ask you, as you ask your interviewees when you're hiring for your openings at Axoff, well, Paul, what do you do outside of work in addition to spending time with your family and your friends that keeps you happy um, and, and therefore allows you to be more productive at work? Yeah, there are a few things. And then sometimes I do them with my friends and, and, and my family. I definitely love to exercise different sports that I like to do, climbing, volleyball, running, recently biking. So exercising is a good way to, uh, to release the stress, I think, and it's healthy. And apart from that, I also have a couple of things that I like to do because they bring me joy, but are not particularly useful for anything. Like I do a lot of old photography, photography involving chemistry and metal plates that it's related to what I love in science and it's beautiful. And yeah, I can spend hours just doing that and not thinking about everything else that's happening. And I really want to keep this going, you know, like whether the company, uh, uh, I mean, there are emergencies in the companies and it's important to deal with them, but most of the time it's still possible to maintain like a good balance between things to do for ourselves and the work. So I'm glad you've been able to do it. And thank you for sharing the personal side with us. Um, you mentioned earlier French culture and your background. You are from France. I'd love to hear more about 
your experiences in this country, in, and in particular in the biotech industry, and even more so as, as the CEO of Axoft. What have you experienced or observed in terms of cultural differences due to people's backgrounds that that may have had an impact on the business that you're in or, or that, that could affect you know, what building a startup? Yes, definitely. And I think that applies both to the biotech industry, but also the academic world, at least in Boston. It's a great environment because there are almost unlimited resources to bring technologies and science forward. The downside is it's unlimited and it's hard to stop sometimes. And I, I, I've met with a lot of people, we've surrounded with a lot of people here, not always from the US because there are people from all over the world in Boston that would overwork. And I think this is the main challenge here is that it's easy to get absorbed into the work and make it the only mission. And that is in contradiction with, I think, how most French people see life. <laughs> and <laughs> so we, it's, we, we, I have friends who summarize it in one sentence that say that they, they work to live, but they don't live to work. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, that it's as simple as that is that, is that even if we, we can love our work at the end of the day, we also do it so that we can do all the things on the side and, and run our personal lives. And I don't think one is preventing to do the other, the other way around, actually, uh, that, uh, having a fulfilling life on the personal side is usually key to be your best in your work. Very good advice, Paul. Thank you for sharing that. I just want to ask you one more question on today's show. It was your first time starting a company and your first time as the CEO. What advice do you have for an individual who's thinking about starting something that they've never done before? It's their first time doing it. What would you tell them? I would give two pieces of advice that are contradictory to one another. Uh, on one side, I would say, Try to talk with people who've done that before in your space because you will learn from them and you will likely, you will quickly figure out if this is something you want to do for yourself. But second, I would say you're, you're never going to be ready. So you got to take a leap of faith and start because you can do as much research as you want. Nothing prepares you for the actual adventure and, and the hurdles that will come because it's unpredictable and it depends on the fact of starting a company. So a little bit of preparation, but not too much. And I think it's really DNA of entrepreneurship that it is like that. Great advice, Paul. Thank you, Paul, for being on our show today. I've enjoyed our conversation. I also enjoy our daily interactions and working on Axoft. And I look forward to continued partnership in that with you together. Thank you, Josh. And thanks to our audience for listening. Until next time on Client Corner, keep on building. Keep on building.